so I have Anne Levine with me from the Law School Expert. Anne, how are you? I'm great, Nathan. How are you doing after the LSAT? Oh, after LSAT came out, there's no break for us. We uh, we immediately start new classes um, leading up to the December LSAT. It's usually a pretty quick turnaround. So, um, yep, back to work. Got a new yep, prop. Yep, me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm let's, sure. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'll take some time off in December. That'll be my first big break. Um, we have one question here. We're doing this separately from the rest of the podcast, so Ben's not here. It's just Anne and I and Anne and me. Hey. And um, here's a question from a reader that asked to be anonymous or a, a listener that asked to be anonymous. It says, I wanted to ask you both about early decision and whether it is worth it. Can other schools see if I've chosen to apply early decision elsewhere? Are the benefits with the school I apply to early decision worth the risk of negatively affecting my applications elsewhere? Um, I don't know if this is helpful, Anne, but some background. Uh, he says, graduated from a top 20 university, 166 LSAT score. Yeah, trying to look for top 14 schools potentially. Um, what do you think about all that? Well, first thing, I, th I have a lot I can say about early decision, but the first misnomer I'd like to correct is um, schools don't see that you've applied somewhere else binding. It's really, that's not the issue here. The issue here is why you would apply binding to a certain school. Um, and that it really is binding. So at most of the top 14 schools, the being accepted under binding early decision program means that you're foregoing, you're, you're going there no matter whether they offer you money or not, right? And you might see that you, before you've gotten in there, that you've been given a great scholarship somewhere else and you won't be able to accept it. So just really be sure about the school you're choosing that no matter what else would happen, it's where you'd want to be. I feel that that's more important than trying to game the system by applying ED and getting into some reach school. I think it, ED doesn't generally work out that way, except maybe at Georgetown. I see big reach people getting into Georgetown um, on the early decision side. And Georgetown's been nice and even given many of those people uh, some token scholarship money. But many of the people who apply their binding are then giving up nearly full rides to other top 20 or top 25 schools. So just be sure of what you're doing. Um, it's not for me about whether it's going to hurt you with other schools. That, that's totally not the point. The point is making a good decision for yourself in the long run. Okay. Um, so, so that's my primary. Now, there are a number of top law schools that are starting to offer sort of neat early decision programs. Like at University of Texas, they actually, whether you're, they have different scholarship levels for in-state versus out-of-state um, applicants. But if you're admitted under the binding early decision program, you actually get a nice little um, scholarship gift. And, and I think it's a research fellowship. And there are other schools that are starting to move in that direction, in which case there's less risk in applying ED. But um, for me, especially for people who are right out of college, um, younger, and their lives aren't quite settled in a certain place yet, I worry about people binding themselves to a school nine months before they'd be attending because a lot can change in your personal life in nine months. What you think is important now might be ranking, but I often work with people who start off telling me their goal is to get into the best school possible. And in the end, they start to see the bill and they go, oh, that other scholarship is looking really tempting. And, yeah. and if you apply ED, you've really robbed yourself of that choice. Um, I think people don't probably understand that there are binding early decision programs and that there are non-binding early decision well, not, programs? Not really. It's not exactly right. So early decision is binding. Early notification is uh, not. Ah, okay. okay? Gotcha. So it's a very big difference. The other thing I should say is that 
if you are admitted under a binding early decision program, the deal is you withdraw your applications from all other schools and turn down all other offers immediately. Like there's no wiggling with it. Um, The other thing is that if you apply binding, it's not necessarily you'll be admitted or rejected under that program. You could be um, pushed over into the regular um, admission pool, in which case the binding part is removed. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, so it's very important to like really read the, read the rules before you apply binding. I had a a phone call this past year from someone who was not one of my clients who just called me randomly freaking out because she had applied binding to Georgetown and then got into Harvard and was trying to figure out how she could get out of it. And could she defer at Harvard until Jordan? I'm like, I don't want to touch you with a 10 foot pole. Like (laughs) this is just bad decision making from the get go. You know, I, I, I can't help you. Did you tell her to just call Georgetown or what did you say to her? Well, you know, she she was obviously very emotionally <laughs> distraught. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I'm pretty sure I said, you know, she's going to have to um, check with both schools to make sure that she's within her agreements on both schools. You know, that if she def- tries to defer, you know, it's up to Harvard to see if her conduct was ethical. You don't really want to start out at Harvard Law School with unethical conduct by pulling yourself out of a binding early decision yeah. program. And I think I might have even said to her, maybe just work something out where you transfer after your first year. Yeah. That's what my student did who, she applied binding to Hastings and then got admitted to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Called me frantic. I, I was like, why did you apply binding to Hastings? <laughs> she was such a good candidate, obviously, by the fact that she got panic. into Berkeley. You know what else, Nathan? I think, and, and I'm not an expert on this part, but I think that in college admissions, early decision is a big deal and almost everybody does it somewhere. But law school admissions, that's not the case. And I think people come into it with the college mindset. Yeah. You know, that, oh, I have to pick somewhere to apply binding. I actually discourage most of my clients from applying binding. Um, a limited case where I might I encourage someone to apply binding would be if they're living in New York City if they know they want to go to NYU, if that's the appropriate tiny reach school, you know, reach school for them, not crazy reach school, but reach. Um, and if, if money is not an object, right, then that's the person yeah. who should apply binding to NYU. Um, Georgetown, I encourage more people to apply binding to because um, I've seen that as being the most likely way into the T14 for people with very high GPAs and LSATs closer to 160. Um, it doesn't work for everyone, but my most impressive candidates that works for, um, some of them are getting small scholarship amounts. Um, so, I mean, now everyone's going to try that now that I've said that on your podcast. But, um, you know, I do think honestly that's, that's the, in terms of T14, that's the way in. But generally I would say avoid early decision unless you're 100% sure. Yeah, I mean that seems like a safe list. You're you're essentially declaring your one true love, right? I mean, you're more than that. I mean, you can always get divorced from a love. You can't really, <laughs> you can't really do that with this. I mean, you know, people try to worm their way around it, but I mean, <laughs> going to law school, like you're going to say you didn't understand the contract you were signing, really? But yeah, you should get into Harvard Law School. Um, yeah, I think um, I think all of the early decision paranoia comes from the general paranoia. I think if you're a strong applicant for T14, you're a strong applicant whether you apply under that program or not. Um, and I always tell all of my clients I want them at the end of the cycle to have the option between getting into some crazy reach school, they're absolutely thrilled, but getting a really great scholarship to another good, really good school. Yeah. And 
if you apply binding, you're negating yourself from having that choice later. Yeah. But I am not at all worried that it's going to hurt you at other schools. That's not the point. It's missing the so, missing the boat. So other schools clearly, just to, yeah, to answer this um, listener's question, other schools cannot see when you've applied to, uh, can, you, can they not see when you've applied to other schools, period? Well, no, they can't access your other applications, but there are, and this, and this segues into a question I get a lot, Nathan, which is a lot of schools do have on their applications questions, um, where else are you applying, right. right? And people freak out at that question. I'm a big believer in just answering the question, right? Law schools aren't stupid. They know you're applying to other schools. They want to see, for example, if you're an applicant from California applying to a school in Boston, you know, how likely are you to come to the East Coast, Right. Or um, who will their competition be if you're a strong applicant? And they can sort of figure out how, what, what they're going to have to do to lure you if they want you. So it's really a marketing question for the law schools. Um, and the only way I think answering that question can hurt people is if they look completely crazy, right? Like if they have a 148 LSAT, a, a 3.0, and there are, they put down that they're applying to Harvard and Cornell and Northwestern and blah, 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 then okay, the person looks like they're not exercising good judgment and answering that question hurt them. But generally, just just fill it out. The okay. schools can't know anything else you're doing really until um, it's de second deposit time, um, the date in June by which um, schools, the put up or shut up date that you uh, schools can ask you to remove if you have multiple deposits, and then they can see. But until that time, uh, they can't. It doesn't mean that law schools aren't informally talking to each other. It just means that they're unlikely to be talking about you. <laughs> gotcha. Um, I have a couple questions. So one is I got an email from a student, uh, one of my Skype students in Minneapolis, and he's applying, he's thinking about applying to Washington University in St. Louis uh, early decision. That program, he says it's only binding if you get a full ride. Okay, so there are scholarship there are early decisions like that. So it's not that it's only binding if you full ride, it's that if you're admitted under binding early decision, you, you get a full, full ride. ride right? yeah, GW okay. does something similar. Other schools are starting to do this as well. So um, so what that means, what that tells me is that the, their binding early decision program is to steal people from other schools. So WashU was trying to steal people from Michigan, from Iowa, from other top schools. Um, or comparable schools in the area um, who are very competitive applicants. That tells me that they're not trying to, that's not the ED program for reach applicants. That's the ED program to, to secure people who will help them bring their numbers up. Okay. Which is what GW does, right? They're using their scholarship early decision program to steal people who would otherwise go to Georgetown. Okay. So to me, I mean, this sounds like a much closer call with this applicant. It would be a bit of a stretch for him. He knows that he would get a full ride if he goes there. He has family there. In that but case, that's... It doesn't hurt him to do this if that's truly his number one, because first of all, it would come with the full ride. And second of all, it really does show how interested he is in the school. So even if he's waitlisted or put into the regular admission cycle, it still shows that level of dedication to attending. I see. You know, I should, I should say something, you know, Schools are not, you know, I think applicants have this idea that law schools are always super smart and law school admission offices are constantly in flux and constantly trying to decide what will work for them and how they're going to do better each year. And they're constantly trying new things, some of which work and some of which don't. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, so sometimes they do things that make no sense. So we're talking about GW versus Georgetown. So I had an awesome client this year, nearly 4.0, 166 or something like that on the LSAT, maybe a point higher. And he applied binding to GW, did not get in, got into Georgetown, 
Then GW gives him the full scholarship anyway. Like, what were they thinking? <laughs> so that's where he went. But it's just like, really? Like, <laughs> I couldn't believe when they didn't take him under the binding. I'm like, here's a kid who's going to get into the other school. Like, what are you thinking? Yeah, wow. It's a mistake so, there. Yeah, but anyway, you know, so, so the schools are not perfect. And so don't read too much into the isolated incidents you read online. But do read the uh, contract you're signing when you sign oh. up for one of these programs. Yeah. yeah, lesson number one, law school, read the contract. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, one other just tiny question. Can you apply early decision to multiple schools? Not I mean, at the same time, but that's a great question, Nathan. Okay, so some schools have later early decision deadlines or second waves of them, like Penn, UVA, Georgetown. In those cases, can you apply binding early decision, say, to Columbia? Wait until, you know, submit your other applications perhaps, right? And then if you um, find out you don't get in under binding Columbia, can you upgrade your application at Penn or UVA or Georgetown into binding there? Yeah, you probably can. Um, in which case, you know, if you later get in Columbia, you're stuck, right? Because you may have gotten in somewhere else binding. But yes, um, but only one binding school at a time. So then if you're thinking about gaming the system that way and doing a second um, round, let's say, early decision um, at another school, you can, you can either hold your application for that time and submit it binding then, or if you've already applied, you can usually ask the school and, and add a binding contract to your application later. Got it. Cool. Um, well, I think that does a pretty good job of answering the questions here. I believe we covered everything. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add? No, I don't think so. I think I would just tell people generally, like, take a deep breath. <laughs> they're going to get through it. Um, they're going to get through this. Make good long-term decisions. Um, don't make short-term decisions at the expense of long-term decisions. Don't remove the power of choice. You know, in the end, it's not... You know, it's not about giving the law schools the power. It's about retaining power and, and yeah. being able to make the best decision for you. And the best decision for you next June or July may not be what you think it is today. So just take a deep breath, keep your options open, and um, take the time and do things right. Awesome. Well said. Um, how can people get in touch with you, Anne? LawSchoolExpert.com. I've got a contact form. I respond to them all personally. Also, my cell phone number is on my website, just like you have. Um, so I welcome people to get in touch. Happy to answer questions. Perfect. Thanks for coming on, Anne. This was great. I guess we'll get back to the uh, regular, the uh, previously recorded rest of the show. All right. Thanks. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how are you doing? Great. Uh, today on the show, we have a bunch of issues all over the board, actually. We're going to do a quick check-in with Anne Levine regarding early decision programs. We had a message asking whether early decision programs were worth it. We have an email from Joe who had something fairly crazy happened on the day of the test. I love these test day uh, stories. So we're going to talk. It's kind of a sad story, I think, for Joe, but we're going to talk about what happened during his uh, October LSAT. We are going to talk about a report that we got from a listener that uh, Alabama law is apparently wanting to give you $30 on iTunes if you apply to their school. It's kind of interesting. We'll chat about that a little bit. 
We got a note from Steve who wants some different help with logic games other than what we've said before. I'm not sure we can help him, but we can give it a shot. And Tau, Toe, I don't know. Tau wants to know what to do after running out of materials. That all sound okay, Ben? Yeah, sounds great. Okay, cool. So let's talk about this uh, email we got from Joe. Um, you want to read it, Ben? Sure. So <clears throat> he starts out and he's he says, thanks for doing the podcast and so on. He's enjoying listening to it. And then he tells us this is what happened to him in the October 2015 test, which just happened. It says, um, I prepared for the LSAT as best as I could, and I was ready to take the exam and be done with it. Great. I'm very a very detailed person. I actually take the time to read all directions and rules pertaining to the LSAT. I read the rules about not bringing certain. I, I read the rules about not bringing certain items, more specifically a digital watch. I brought my analog watch to help me keep pace during the exam. As you might know, before entering the testing site, proctors or staff members check your Ziploc bag and watch to ensure that you have proper items. The proper items. Well. They check my bag and I proceed to wait around for an hour to start the exam. As I mentioned before, I use the watch to help keep pace. So what I do, I take the clock hands and start them at noon. And then the proctor says start and I start my watch. That makes sense. So he's basically taking his analog watch and setting it to noon, right? So that he doesn't have to do the calculations. And then it goes to 35 minutes and then he probably sets it again. In any case, I did this for three sections, and when I started the fourth section, so this is after the break, I continued to do so. It was during the fourth section when a proctor stopped me during the exam and asked me if I had, quote, a silent timer. <laughs> I've never, I don't even know what that is. Do you know I, what that is? I have never heard the phrase a silent timer. I do not know what that is. I have no idea. This is like Twilight Zone. Yeah. <laughs> Why the heck are you talking to me? Why the heck is she talking to him then and not during the break? This is crazy. I stated that I didn't, and she continued to ask me if I had, quote, a silent timer. <laughs> At this point, I was getting frustrated. No kidding. Losing time. And I kept asking her to define what a silent timer was. She couldn't answer that question and had me removed from the room. <laughs> oh, this is this is hilarious, man. I mean, it's sad, but it sucks for Joe. This is crazy. Um, I'm not going to answer your questions. Come out of the room. At this point, I thought to myself, well, maybe I'm not allowed to manually move the clock hands on my analog watch, and I figured I was in trouble. Uh, that is not true, by the way. She then gives me a notice of violation form, and on the form it stated that I was in possession of an electronic digital watch. Okay, I did not realize that she put down I had a digital watch. I think that's referring back to when he checked in, right? No, she gave him the notice of violation as she was kicking him out. Then he went home, and he didn't read the violation form until he got home. Oh, I was I thought that, that she had done this like when he was checking in, which no. is why he was telling us about that. No, okay. if that was so, the case, she wouldn't even have let him take the test at all. So she gave him the notice... As well, she that's was what kicking I him out. That's what I figured, but I thought it, the whole thing is weird. So yeah, like, it is bizarre. She that's let true. him go in and then decided in the fourth section, I better take action. But in any case, so <laughs> she, so that makes sense. So she gave him the notice of violation 
and it said it on there, but he didn't notice it. He didn't realize that she put it down until, oh, so, so then he drove, he left, and he says, I, he drove back, I drove back to the testing site to correct the matter. I tried to tell her that she had made a mistake and that my watch was an analog watch. She asked if my watch beeped or buzzed. <laughs> this, is, this is great. I started once again, stated. I stated once again, sorry, that it is an analog watch, and she kept telling me that there was nothing she could do and that I would need to contact LSAC. At this point, I was really mad and truly think she realized she should not have removed me from the room, and there was nothing she could do about it. My questions for you is, do you think LSAC will be in my favor of this situation? Um, and have you ever heard of situations like this before? What happens when you receive a violation form? Um, I should point out that the proctors at this test site were not professional and failed to completely read instructions, the instructions correctly. They also told us that we could not have our watches on the desk. The watch had to be worn or underneath your seat, which is stated differently on the mission. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I hope other people do not fall victim to this. Thanks for your time. Yeah, that really sucks for Joe. Um, assuming that he's, we're hearing it from his side of the story, of course, but assuming that everything he said is true, this really is a crappy situation. So what do you think, Nathan? Yeah, sorry, dude. I mean, this is a really bad situation. Um, we're kind of laughing it up at your expense here. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to laugh, Joe. It's just <laughs> like that lady is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is uh, one of the worst stories I've ever heard. Um, I think we don't know what's going to happen. We can speculate. It, it yeah, it's it is it is bizarre. No, I have never heard of anything like this before. Do you know what happens, Ben, when you get a violation form? I don't know, but okay. my gut reaction is if this happened to me, my first my first thing would be to go on LSAC's website to research violations as quickly as possible, see what they say. There, there's got to be some sort of an appeal process because I'm sure um, people have complained about their violations before. Yep. And then I, and I would take action really fast. Like, I think it looks weird if this thing happens and he doesn't do anything for a month or waits till, you know, the report is finally submitted to him and he's like, hey, by the way, I have issue with this. Like, yeah. this is something where... If you were wronged, you would speak up right away. Yeah. I told him on the blog to basically wrote what he wrote in a formal form. Granted, he's got to look at the procedures and how he's got to submit, but I'm assuming I'm assuming he has to submit something in writing. They don't want you calling. So he he's going to write it up. He's going to make this a little more polished. And then I would, because they messed up, I would ask for the option to take in December at no cost because they messed up to remove the violation, obviously. And... Uh, I don't know any other costs associated that they would bear. I can't think of any, but yeah, um, definitely you should be, yeah, you should be indignant. You should write a, I mean, not, don't be a dick when you write the email, but it can be strongly worded. Um, yeah, I agree with Ben, send it in right away. I might call as well. I mean, I might exhaust like all, all possible avenues yes i guess i uh definitely i would agree with that do call what i meant was you're gonna want this in writing yes. too so that you can say even if you follow up with an email afterwards saying hey this is what we said and thanks um just so it's all documented yeah totally what i mean is it even worth maybe sending like registered letter just to make it clear um, that you're 
you know, you're, you're documenting this as you go? Or do you think just sending, I mean, through their website, it could, it could just disappear, right, into the ether? Yeah, yeah I, uh, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I mean, um, doesn't hurt. Yeah, it's, it sucks, man. This is going to be a, this is going to be a shitty situation. You know, I got the email and I was like, I believe you, but I can also see how the LSAC is going to just not believe him at all. Yeah. Right. I mean, the LSAC has to get all kinds of crazy people making all kinds of crazy requests all the time. And Joe, mm -hmm. I'm not saying you're crazy. I'm just saying, think about it from their perspective. Mm -hmm. They're not going to want to hear that their proctors did a bad job. They're not going to want to take away a violation notice that's on, you know, that you've got, that you got from the day of the test. The fact that you drove away from the test and then came back, I don't think helps your case at all. Um, when they wrote you that form and it said you had an electronic watch, I, you know, leaving and coming back is like, I, I was thinking about it from their perspective and it was like, well, yeah, he went home, put his electronic watch away, got another analog watch, brought that back to the testing center, mm -hmm. claimed that this is what he had. How can we verify that? You know, the proctor saw what the proctor saw. I don't know. I, I can see him losing this case. I'm totally speculating, but I can definitely see him losing this case. If if you do lose this case, Joe, um, uh, appeal it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, I don't. I'm assuming you can apply with a violation, right? That's why they put it on your score report. I would apply to law schools, and I would make your case to the end of time. Yeah. An addendum. Say it's just it's total malarkey yeah i mean also the number one thing that he can do is really retake the test and just get a really good score yeah right i mean he has to now retake the test no matter what he will be taking it again because he didn't get, he's not going to get a score from this test um yeah. he will be taking it again you want the very best lsat score that you can possibly have uh as far as appealing i mean the lsac is a bunch of lawyers so good luck you know, you're who knows, it might be easier than I think it's going to be. But my guess would be that, you know, in order to win this, uh, if the whole appeal and everything, I can imagine him like having to get a lawyer and all that. And God damn it. If you do that, that's just going to be bad times for everybody. So um, this is unbelievable. You know, I, you know what? I think maybe the one point that I like the most in his case is they told us we could not have our watches on the desk. Yeah. That's so, it's a specific and a wrong and kind of bizarre thing for the proctor to be telling you. Mm -hmm. And I, I, for some reason, I feel like putting that in the case is kind of, is good. Yeah. And I wonder if there's anyone else at the test center that he knows that could submit a similar complaint because if they get multiple complaints from the same from the same test right. saying hey we weren't allowed to use our watches it's going to make the whole watch thing like bad right yeah and and which that is might, good for joe right if it if it's clear that everyone at the site had a problem if it's clear that the proctors were just not doing the job then that that might but still it's like best case for joe they wipe the violation off his record and let him retake it for free, mm -hmm. which is not a very awesome upside, but it's better than having the violation on record. Yeah.
I mean, that's all he can do now. He's not going to get a score. So. Yeah. And he doesn't want one, right? Because he didn't finish. So. Yeah. If anybody out there knows what happens when you get one of these violation forms, uh, love to hear it. If you've got a story of a, of yourself or a friend who is in law school, even though they had a violation on one of the LSATs, um, that would be really interesting. I think we'd love to give an update on the show talking about that. The only other violation form that I know of, a student of mine was darkening in her bubbles after time was called. Mm, mm-hmm. And what happened? Uh, she got the violation form. I don't, I don't know what happened after that. I just know that they canceled her score and put it as a violation on her record. Hey, quick side note about that. I don't know if we've talked about that before or not, but um, when I'm proctoring here on Saturdays and I say, hey, stop, put your pencils down, that's just the phrase I say. I think that's what they say, so it's what I say. But um, it's really interesting because I'd say about half do instantly and the other half don't, and it's painfully obvious, even if it's for 10 seconds or 5 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I was proctoring a test last night. I should start being a little more like Nazi proctor style, just just in case, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it is important that you get your bubbles bubbled in inside of 35 minutes. You might be able to get away with bubbling in one more bubble after time is called, but it's not really worth it. It's not, I mean, it's not worth the risk mm-hmm. of, the, of the violation. Yeah. Um, if, if you're not already out there in um, LSAT land, you should be practicing with bubble sheets. You should do those, the books of 10 tests that everyone has. There's perforated bubble sheets in the back of the book. And you can rip out one of those bubble sheets and then do your test with the bubble sheet. You should be working with a pencil, not a pen. And you should be working on those bubble sheets so that you can practice doing all that stuff inside of the 35 minutes. Um, some proctors do take their job very seriously. This sounds like this proctor took her job very seriously, even though she didn't know what she was doing. Yeah. And um, yeah, you just don't want to uh, have any problems like this. Can we give any other advice to, to Joe about, about this situation? Uh, okay. So I just went online to figure out what happens. Um, Good. Of course I haven't found any really great useful information yet, but it is kind of funny. They said they have the 11 violations and violation number one, by the way, is attempting to take the test for someone else or having someone else take the test for you, just in case you didn't know. Yeah, right. Oh, that's not allowed? Oh, <laughs> oh okay. Uh, don't do that. No bringing firearms, of course. Now, in terms of, let's see here, LSAC has adopted a no-tolerance policy with regard to the possession of electronic devices. So obviously that's not his case. What the heck? They don't say what you should do if you're falsely accused um hmm. okay oh this is interesting test supervisors and their staff oh i thought that was never mind okay um let's see here you know i can't see anything frequently asked questions and it really talks about other stuff so i'm not sure how you would i'm not sure how he should uh appeal this but the thing that you can do that lsac is actually decent at is calling their phone number. Yeah. I feel like their helpline is pretty good. Like they get a whole lot of questions and they seem to know the answer pretty quickly. So I would just call them 215-968-1001 and then just um, say, hey, what do I do? And see what they tell you. If they tell you not to do anything, obviously that's wrong. And then <laughs> you gotta, 
do something else. But I'm yeah, sure help you. Joe, if you can give us an update, we would really appreciate it. Um, sorry about this situation. It it looks man, it looks bad from from where I'm standing. It just looks like it would be so easy for them to say like, oh, of course, you're just trying to get out of your violation. Mm-hmm. You know, you had an electronic watch and you're just trying to get out of it. Yeah. It's his word against theirs. Uh, oh, that's a gross. That is just a gross situation. But I think your point about her not allowing them to have the test or the watches on the desks is a point in his favor. It shows there's inconsistency elsewhere and it has to do with watches. I would go all over that. Yeah, what is that? Why does that why does that have more like um I was going to say probative value. That's not the right word. Why does it have more why is it more compelling when he when he throws that in there? Well, because like, I think when it's a he said, she said case, right? You're kind yeah. of depending on their, you're trusting in them. And it's like, wait a sec, this person doesn't know what they're doing in another circumstance. Yeah. Maybe they don't know what they're doing here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, in if, if we could go back in time, you know, I, I think Joe should have said, what are you talking about? This is an analog watch. I'm allowed to have an analog watch. Um, yeah. And uh, read the violation without, you know, uh, but I mean, shit, uh, we're not blaming Joe for not, <laughs> not responding to this situation perfectly. But uh, mm -hmm. I guess if this ever did happen to you, you should, you know, on the spot, you should, you should say, wait, what? Electron? I don't have an, ele this is not an electronic anything. What are you yeah. talking about? Stop, sit down, read everything that they've just given you. Yeah, don't leave. Yeah. Now this is a this is a broader thing, but um it might be more applicable in a lot more situations and that is just being confident about what you are allowed and not allowed to do in the test. Yeah. And when proctors tell you otherwise, I mean, make sure you know your stuff, but it doesn't hurt to calmly hold your ground. Say, "No, we're allowed to have watches on the desk" or um no, you know, a Ziploc, this size Ziploc bag is fine, or this snack is fine. I don't, whatever, whatever a proctor gives you trouble for, um, know the rules and just say, no, this is allowed. We're allowed to have yeah, these um, mini pencils or whatever, you know? I reviewed the test day restrictions last night on the LSAC website, <laughs> you know, yeah. like being able to say that and, and have it be true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, no, this is, I, uh, this is exactly, I'm totally allowed to have this watch. Um, I think it's worth noting that you are most likely going to know more about the test than the proctor. Mm -hmm. uh, the proctor, you know, they do this four times a year, right? For mm -hmm. one day, one Saturday. And yeah. I just can't imagine that they're paid very much money. And so it's too bad. I'm sure they're good people and everything, but they're just, you know, they're not like super well trained or super well practiced in being a proctor. No, so, I mean, this is an exercise that's carried out throughout the world. And so LSAC is randomly depending on random people yeah. everywhere. Yeah, totally. Um, LSAC, pay your proctors more and train them better. Because I've been hearing weird, lots of kind of bad proctor stories lately. Um, some of them are great, I'm sure, but some of them are really pretty weak. And mm -hmm. uh, this sounds like a situation where somebody really got screwed because of it. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on. Um, sure. So we got a note from listener Kaylee, who's becoming a star of the show. Um, we're hearing a lot from Kaylee. Anyway, uh, 
she forwarded an email from University of Alabama Law School. Alabama is offering to both waive her application fee and give her $30 to spend on iTunes if she applies to their school. Kaylee says, I have neither a connection nor an interest in going to Alabama, but law schools must be really hard up for applicants if this is being spammed out to people with LSAC accounts to get them to apply early to keep the school's numbers up. It just feels kind of gross. <laughs> there have to be... She's funny. There have to be better, let alone more responsible ways to spend that money. I wonder how many other schools are doing similar things. What do you think about this uh, situation? Yeah, well, uh, it is surprising. Um, I had no idea, but it is an interesting way to kind of entice people who I think are interested. It does say that she did say, I assume this would offset the LSAC fee to apply. I completely... $30? I thought it was more like 75 I guess for Alabama, it's probably 30 Huh? It's like... No, they're, she's talking about the report fee. The Credential oh. Assembly Service report fee, which, by the way, is like... I always use this as like a comedy routine in my classes that you have to pay for the Credential Assembly Service. What's that? That's like 150 or something? Something like that. You have to pay for yeah. the LSAT. Yeah. You have to pay for the... Yeah, you have to pay for the Credential Assembly Service. You have to pay for school applications. Each per school, you pay for applications. But then you also have to pay for the reports that the Credential Assembly Service sends to the schools. <laughs> so the, the Credential Assembly Service is like a fee that you pay to then for the privilege of paying them more for sending the reports. So that's what, and I think that those fees, they're pretty high. I think it's like $28 or something like that per school that you actually have to pay again to the LSAC. And we're just talking about the LSAC or the LSAT score report. That's what we're talking it's about. It's essentially, yeah, it's, it's, it's an application report. So it's your score report and then your personal statement, letters of recommendation, all that shit that the, that mm -hmm. the LSAC. And by the way, it's all like 100% electronic, right? Oh, yeah. For so sure. it's got to cost them basically zero. To, oh, wait, you're to talking. This. Oh, I, I didn't, for some reason, I don't know why this hadn't clicked with me. So I knew about the $7,500, whatever fee it Application was. fees that yeah, go to the, the schools. schools. Yes. Then you're saying that LSAC dings you every time you apply to another school? <laughs> yes. So you're paying 100 plus whatever, or 75 plus whatever. Yes, it's 75 per school plus 30 that you're going to pay to the LSAC. Yeah, oh per school. And yeah. this is, like you said, this is all electronic. They're not like sitting there putting them in an envelope no. for you and say, hey, we're going to send it off. They're just, their computer is sending a PDF <laughs> to another computer. Yes. Oh, let's, let's sweat bullets over that. Yeah, it's it's just such a racket. What do they man. do with all that money? I they're 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 super rich. I've heard. I mean, we're not even talking about our royalties that we pay for. Them. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Want, we don't we don't want to go there. We're we're like nervous little. No, I like to I like to tell my kids. Um, I like to like run through all the different ways that they pay the LSAC. But it's like, have you ever bought an LSAT book? Okay, you paid the LSAC for the licensed LSAT questions inside that. You've signed up for my class, and uh, a big portion of what you pay for when you sign up for my class is all of the LSAC license fees that I have to pay for my books and for whatever tests I hand you. Um, you're signing up for the Credential Assembly Service, so now you've paid them three times. You're signing up for the LSAT, so now you've paid them four times. And then when you apply to individual schools, you're going to pay them, again, every single school you apply to, you're going to pay them this $28 fee. Hmm. Um, oh, not to mention, you know, if you take the test again, you'll pay for that. If you reschedule, you'll pay for that. 
Yeah. <laughs> change your location, you'll pay for that. <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable. They're, uh, they've got quite a racket going. Yeah, I had a student the other day who, who really was debating between two test centers, and then she's like, you know what, forget it, I'm just going to change. So then she spent like the 30 or $60 it is to change. Right? I think it's 30 I hope so. Um, well, I hope it's zero, but it's not. And she changed, and then she like two days later she said, oh, shoot, you know what, I'm not going to take this test, I'm going to take the next one. So then she had to <laughs> pay to transfer it to the next test, and it was just like, oh, my goodness. Just, <laughs> LSAC's just sitting there. Laughing, I'm sure. The cash register just won't stop ringing. They're like, I'm so, I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Over the sound of the cash register ringing so so loudly. <laughs> oh, you want to change back to that other test center? Yeah. No problem. Yeah, totally. Wow. Um, so that's that's crazy. Um, yeah. If someone is hesitant because of the money, and then they decide to apply, and then they get a an acceptance, and they maybe don't get accepted to other places that they had really actually considered going, and now all of a sudden they're thinking, well, heck, maybe what's in Alabama? Let me go see. Um, it doesn't really seem like it costs the school. I'm assuming the school isn't paying LSAC too. That would be that would be depressing. But I'm assuming it doesn't really cost the school anything to get an application because they can decide whether or not they want to review it solely based on your LSAT score and GPA, which a computer does. So... Other than the $30 loss, I don't know. It doesn't seem that bad. I mean, they're paying a lot of money for marketing in some way, shape, or form. Either yeah. to try to convince other law professors that they're a great school so their ranking can go up, which would be astronomically more expensive. So Yeah, Kaylee was like all all pissed off about this. She thought that it was a gross waste of money. I, I think just because she um, has no intention of ever going, you know, it sounds like, Never, no intention of ever setting foot in the state of Alabama, kind of intentionally, yeah. it sounds like from her. She's like a northerner, right? Yeah. But um, she she was like, this is really bad, you know, judgment on their part. Um, well, one but thing I, about it is it offsets the fee, which means that if you're not going, if you're not interested, you're not going to do it. Because it's not like you get $30. You still have to pay the money to apply and then get the $30. I think that's so. right. Yeah, she'll still, she'll pay $28 to the LSAC for sending the report or whatever it is. I thought it used to be 28 It's probably more now. Um, she'll pay that fee to the LSAC and that'll, that'll be all she'll pay. And then she'll get the 30 bucks. So yeah, it's not like it's a windfall. Or anything yeah so you know, it's not like they're going to get people applying just to get the 30 dollars. i think right i think they would be saying well i'm on the fence and now it's free so heck let yeah me do it yeah i was gonna say hey why not just apply to get the 30 bucks but yeah no you're gonna be paying that 30 bucks to the lsac so um i don't know i feel like it's kind of interesting they're out there they're they're hustling i would rather have my law school look like they're hustlers than look like they're not hustlers you know like you want a school that's going to be innovative and like doing things to try to better the reputation of the school. Mm -hmm. um, I guess maybe Kaylee is saying that this does not better the reputation of the school. But. Well, the one thing it's a little odd is maybe it's because it's like iTunes. Yeah. What the heck does this have to do with anything? You know, maybe if they somehow, I don't know. I feel like it's just iTunes is basically just kind of like Amazon. You know, it's just like, yeah. hey, here's we would give you cash, but instead we're going to give you a gift card. They probably also only spend what twenty dollars for a thirty dollar gift card. They're buying them in bulk. Oh, 
gift no cards idea. like don't get redeemed, you know. So I yeah. think that you can get gift cards for cheaper than than actually the the hmm. value of it. Yeah. So, anyways, I you know I, maybe it's costing Alabama twenty bucks anytime somebody redeems one of these things, or anytime yeah they twenty bucks per applicant mm-hmm. that comes in through this program. And I was trying to tell Kaylee like, hey, if you if they get one hundred fifty thousand dollars of tuition out of somebody as a result of this program, you know. $150,000 divided by 20 means that this can fail many, many times. All it has to do is work every once in a while, and then it breaks even, right? Yeah, I think what's gross about it is the fact that you can see the marketing, whereas what Kaylee probably just didn't think about is that there is money being spent in a lot of different oh, ways on shit, marketing yeah. that is totally useless. And so the question is just, is this effective or not? And yeah. it's just capitalism. The they thing are. that's gross is just how much it all costs, right? I mean, yeah, that's it's already gross. It's just <laughs> it's just that now you're looking at law it. school is gross. Got it? Okay, keep <laughs> studying for the LSAT. You'll do fine. Yeah. Well, it is getting crazy out there, man. Like with the scholarship money, like the I think that the reason why all of this is so expensive is that they give so many scholarships, and so some people are paying zero, and some people are paying double the price. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what it is is it's if you if you're not in if you're not really going to law school for any good reason, then you should definitely not go. This is not the time to go. But at the f- the flip side of that is if you have a real good reason to go to law school and you really want to do this, this is your time. Yeah, it's a buyer's market, and uh, they're yeah they're throwing around money and free applications and all sorts of stuff. So mm-hmm. never been a better time to apply if this is something you really want to do. Yeah. Okay, a um, couple more emails. Uh, Steve is asking about logic games. Uh, I wrote the test this last Saturday. Felt pretty good overall. There's a chance that I'll redo it in December. Steve's in Canada. Says you basically need a 160 to get a good chance of getting in. His practice test scores, last three were 160, 162, 164. This test said he did okay. Still thinks he's retaking anyway, I guess. Sorry, all that's kind of irrelevant. Hmm. Um, the question is, I used 7Sage during my prep. I still tend to score in the mid-teens on new logic game sections. Uh, between 13 and 18, something like that. It's a decent improvement from where he was when he first started, but he really wants to have that aha moment that we speak of. Um, would love to get closer to 170. Feels like he needs, you know, kind of perfect games or close to perfect games. Sorry for the long message, but any advice on different logic games, materials, or approaches would be most appreciated. Uh, I'd like to be working on this gap in my skills before getting my October score back just to make sure I don't waste time. Um, okay, that's Steve. Thanks, Steve. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I wonder how many old game sections he's done. I feel like that he could, that could give him exposure to a lot of different kind of games and getting used to things that are different and trying to move quickly. The other thing I'm wondering is if he's doing, I guess we don't really know how well he's doing on sections that or games that he's seen before, but assuming that he's acing them, um, if he's only getting to 13 to 18 questions, 
Definitely sounds like he's moving too slow, which could be because he's testing too many answer choices still. Like he's getting the right answer. Or he mm. knows how to get the answer, but he's testing them as opposed to like proactively thinking what could be inferred. Um, or maybe he's not moving fast enough in really simple games. Um, sometimes I feel like people are like, oh yeah, that game was super easy. It's, it was five questions in a simple ordering game and I did it in like eight minutes and I totally know I crushed it. And yeah, that's right. great. And I'd rather, I'm, be, I'm really glad that they did well on it and they didn't, you know, you don't want to rush through a game and miss easy questions. But at the same time, I'm thinking five questions, easy game. That's a game you could probably do if you got, you know, if you work on speed, five, six minutes. Yeah, or three minutes. You yeah. Know? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that, I remember, I don't time myself very often, but I do remember timing myself on the, the June, randomly. I happened to do the June 2009 test mm-hmm. timed. Um, and I, I never do this, but I had recorded how many minutes it took me to do each game. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the section with the dinosaurs game. Mm-hmm. And um, I made it through that section in time. I remember thinking like, whoa, that was pretty different or tough, but I made it through in time. But <clears throat> I did game one, I had it written on the page, three minutes. I did game one in three minutes. Mm-hmm. And I did that game three in like 13 or 14 minutes, the dinosaurs yeah. game. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think people don't get that that's how it really is for people who are really good at the test. You know, yeah, I'm, you are spending a lot of time on some of these, especially when it's the first time you've ever seen them. Yeah, that dinosaurs game, I didn't like just kill that the very first time I ever saw it. Like I had to, f- it, it's it's kind of unique, right? And so you have to just figure it out and di- dig into it and, and spend some time and figure it out. And then all of a sudden you get to like, oh, there's only four ways to do the mob dinosaurs. Okay, I see, I get it, okay. But it, it's not like that just naturally happens immediately in two seconds. Mm-hmm. The, the reason why people aren't making it through the logic game sections is because they aren't good enough at the easy games. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, I couldn't make it through game three or game four. And it's like, yeah, because you didn't have enough time. Yep. Yeah, that story is so common. You have really high test, uh, test high scores, and they take the test, like test 72, right? The last game is very tough. And they said, oh, I got to the last game and I had 15 minutes and I was like, awesome. And then I used all 15 minutes and I finished and I did well in the games, but it was yeah. because they had that luxury. Um, yeah, that is very true, especially for uh, new test takers. They will be like, oh, I just really couldn't understand game four. And they, f- well, how do you feel about game one? Oh, that was fine. But it took them 10 to 12 minutes, which is way too slow. Yeah, I this is I, I want to beat this point up a little bit, I think, and make sure people really get it. Because I, I have, you know, I'll be sitting with a tutoring student um, and they'll they'll want to show me, you know, hey, this game three, what would you have done here? Or, or boy, this section was tough. I just couldn't get it. You know, game four really bothered me. And they'll, they'll open up their own test. They'll open it to game four and they'll like put it in front of me. Mm hmm. And the first thing that I've learned to do is I start paging back and look at the diagrams that they made for game one and game two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because there's always problems. There's always like, well, you could have done this better. Yeah. And if you would have, you might have saved yourself. I know you did great on this game. Yes, I know you got them all right. You got them all right in game number one. And you got them all right in game number two. And that's awesome. And you but. have three diagrams for each answer choice. Which is yeah, crazy. but look at all the work you did on yeah. testing out these answer choices and you you know or the opposite of that like look how much of this you tried to do in your head instead of just like Mm -hmm. making a new diagram for this local condition and then just answering the question why are you trying to do this in your head anyway um 
it's shocking that even the very best students, I'll look back at their easy, the easy games and I'll be like, you know, there, here's a little thing you could have maybe done better. Remember this little technique? What about that? Didn't think about that. Oh, you know, or like, oh, two scenarios really crushes this game mm-hmm. and they didn't go there. And because they didn't go there, or they, they didn't do the earlier games quite efficiently enough. Then they end up running out of time on the later, harder games. Yeah. Um, I get in in classes and stuff um, or with my online program, I'll talk to students and they'll say, well, yeah, you know, I usually don't watch your videos for game one and game two because I just I, I want to work on game three and game four. <laughs> um, I think people don't appreciate that, you know, I might have five different ways of getting there on game one and they have one way and it works, but it, it might not be the best. It might not be the fastest. So yeah, I, I think Steve maybe could. Um, well, we don't really know what he's doing, right? No, hard to tell. But those are some possibilities: is that he's going too slow on the easier games, or, uh, well, yeah, that's that's a big one. Yeah, resources. Uh, all we know that he's used is Seven Sage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Seven Stage starts at test thirty-six, and then. Oh, that's why you specifically recommended go get the earlier games. Yeah, it's possible that he hasn't seen them. Um, so it would be you know more exposure to unseen games. Yeah, that's a great idea. Just the more you see, the more you'll realize like, that everything just kind of repeats itself. Even some of the really, really old games are still uh, like exactly what you would find on the test today, right? Not all of yeah. them, but yeah. a lot of them. For sure. Yeah, I would recommend the Power Score Logic Games Bible if he hasn't done it yet. He didn't mention it. Mm-hmm. Um, if he hasn't used any book at all, I mean, that right now is the book, I think. Um, okay, yeah, I guess that's maybe what we got for yeah. Steve. Okay, cool. Last one, and we'll wrap it up. Um, I got an email from uh, another listener, Tao, says, um, I took the LSAT a second time. My first score is 162. Today I feel like I did okay on both the reasoning and the games. I feel like I got less than four wrong on each of the reasoning and less than three wrong on the games. But I missed the entire reading, uh, last reading comprehension passage, and I'm less than confident about the rest of the passages since I'm not applying to apply... Wait, since I am planning to apply for September 2016, my only questions are, should I take the December test? What are the implications of taking the LSAT three times? And should I cancel my score if I feel like I didn't do as well as I wanted for my target schools? Um, let's stop there, Ben. What do you think in this situation? It's it's now too late to cancel. By the time this episode comes out, it's too late to cancel for the October test. But generally, regarding canceling, what would you what would you say? Okay, so he felt good about three of the sections. He just didn't feel good about the last passage. And he his first score is a one sixty two. He has I mean, a 162 on record. He's definitely going to do better on this test, right? He says less than four wrong on each reasoning, so that's six total. Less than three on the games, that's another two. So he has minus eight, um, which is going to put him in the 170s range. And now he's missing a passage, the last passage in the reading comp. That could okay. be seven questions. Worst case scenario, yeah, seven, eight points because he maybe missed some somewhere else. So we're looking at minus 16. He is far and above his first score. 
people. Yeah, he. So I, I stopped a little early on the email. His his recent practice tests have been one sixty eight to one seventy two. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I agree with you. Like even if he, it looks like this score is better than the score he has on record. I I think it's yeah, unless something really ha- weird happened in the other three reading comp passages. Yeah. And I guess what he's so I think his question is. He's kind of planning to retake it again anyway, because he mm-hmm. thinks he can do better, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. But he's now, the issue here is like, I think that I probably scored 165 on this test, which is better than what I have on record. Yeah. But I think I can also score 170 when I take it again for the, for the final third time. So he's wondering if it's better to have a 162 cancel 170 versus right. a 162, 165, 170. Right. I think it's I think it's better to have a 162 cancel 170. But than it is to have a 162 165 170, but I don't think it's very much better. And I also think that he needs to think about the bird in the hand, right? Yeah. Like he has this it's going to go up. So then he'd have a score on record. I mean, the thing about it is let's say he gets a 165. That's a, that seems kind of low actually given the numbers he's saying to us. I yeah, like I mean it would... could be even better than that, right? So, well, so let's just say 165. If something weird happens and he can't apply in December, he becomes unusually sick on that day or I don't know, whatever. If he can't take the test in December. He can't take the test and then car accident, hurricane, blizzard, all kinds of things, right? Yeah. Someone in your family gets sick if this is a 165 yeah i think that there are a lot of situations where he would be pretty happy to have that 165 on his record yeah maybe he i don't know i mean and that's assuming it's a 165 i i guess i would it's still it's gonna help it's not gonna hurt and i guess you're right i mean i think it's marginally better to have a 162 cancel 170 but i I don't know. It, we're going up. So I don't really have yeah. a problem with this. Well, and I also would rather have 162, 165 on mm-hmm. my record than 162 and then cancel. Yeah. And nothing. right. It's, yeah. it's only once you have the 170 that you would then go, oh, well, I'd rather have those earlier ones be canceled. Oh, yeah. of course. <laughs> but yeah. only after you have that higher score. <laughs> so how certain are you that you're going to be able to achieve this? And, you know, I, I I would bet on him, you know, based on his practice test scores. It seems mm-hmm. like he should go get a 170. Why not? But he hasn't done it yet, and lots of shit can happen. Yep. So um, it seems pretty clear here that if you if you think that the score that you just got is higher than whatever score you have on record, or even if there's a decent chance that the score is higher than whatever score you have on record, I think you absolutely need to keep the score and just, uh, yeah, take it again and get better. But... Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be keeping good scores, not throwing away good scores. Yeah. Um, he has a question about how to restudy. This will be his third attempt. So he says, I think this time around, I'll try to take practice tests three sections at a time with no breaks in between to better simulate the real testing conditions. However, from the seven months of continuous studying, I've finished all the recent tests and a lot of the older ones too. I've certainly done all the exams with comparative reading. What do you think? Also, do you have any tips for this late stage of studying? Thank you so much, Tao. Okay, so a couple things come to mind. He says that I've certainly done all the exams with comparative reading. So comparative reading started with the June 2007 LSAT. Um, 
that in terms of books, that's doesn't have a test number, but test 52, which is the first test in the green book, is the first one with comparative reading. So this means that he's done everything from 52, September 2007, up to the present, which I think is test 75, the June okay. 2015 test. In any case, that's a lot of tests. The 25 um, most recent tests. 25 most recent tests. And the thing about it is if he's only done all of those tests once, I guess it's not exactly clear. He, he just says, I've finished all of them and some older ones too. It sounds to me like he's done them once. If he's only done them once, even if he scored between 168 and 172 on them, I would say there's still a lot of points on the table in those tests. Retake them. Your scores are going to be skewed, obviously, because you've seen those tests before. But just set a higher standard for yourself. Go ahead. Go get a 180. Um, I think he'll find it challenging, even though he's seen those tests before, especially yeah. for tests that he hasn't reviewed in a while. Um, Most people, I should just throw in, because it, it's a, a point in favor of your plan of redoing these tests. Most people do not review their tests um, nearly thoroughly enough. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. They do lots and lots and lots of tests and lots and lots of sections, which is great. But then they, they, they kind of half-ass it when they go through trying to review their mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that's what um, this listener did, but... Uh, if that's you, then you haven't really squeezed all the value you can out of those tests. And so, yeah, you like to say, Ben, I learned this one from you, is like if he goes back and retakes these newer tests, um, if, if he scores 180 on them, then great. Okay, maybe you're wasting your time. Mm -hmm. But if he scores less than 180 on them, then there's still stuff he can learn there. Yeah. So go through these tests again and very seriously review any mistake that you make because it's sort of like oh i'm making that same mistake again mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and and you should be cleaning those errors up yeah um the other thing i would consider doing between tests is and this is only for him because he's already scoring uh in the upper 160s low 170s would be the the 600 LR questions that are the hardest ones from previous tests. Okay. That I put on the blog a while ago. You remember that list? Yep. Uh huh. Yeah. So uh, really, only for those people who are already scoring very high, because those are one-off questions that are sort of random. But it can be a good way to uh, just do questions, or at least a lot of questions that are very challenging. The kinds of questions he's probably missing. Um, when he's taking the test. Yeah, that's for somebody who's like in the 170s. You know, yeah. that's that's enrichment for high achievers. But mm -hmm. that might be something that, that uh, Tao would find useful. Um, I would maybe say less is more for, for people like this as well. Um, people like to double down on the studying. I just, you know, like, they love to just like, well, I just need to do 10 hours a day. That'll do it. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that instead maybe it's it, we need more like close reflection on the kinds of mistakes that you're making yeah um it, i think that the entire dna of the lsat is really contained in one test if mm. you really truly understood one test ev all the way through like every single question i feel like you pretty much have the lsat certainly if you've done every test that has comparative reading on it every test since june 2007 
if you really understood all of those tests, you would understand everything there is to know about the LSAT. Yeah. So um, maybe do them, but in a different way where instead of, he's talking about like, I'm going to do three sections back to back to back, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a lot. I mean, that takes 35 minutes times three hour and 45 minutes. But then it takes more time than that because you have to set aside the time to do the thorough review of your mistakes. Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing that, then you're really being inefficient. I think you're just sort of burning time by, it's like slot machine, you know, just like, oh, I want to see what score I got this time. I want to see what score I got this time. Mm -hmm. You know, now did I win? And and instead you need to be breaking down the, the attempt and looking at, at what you did wrong and figuring that out. Yeah. So for... I say this like every show, I feel like, but I try to tell people to do one 35-minute section and then review the shit out of it. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the magic formula. Uh, I really like your uh, DNA analogy. I've been starting to share that in class. Nice. I say, hey, look, if you know this test in and out, then you'll know 95% or more Yeah. of what you will see on your test, no matter when that happens. I think people get that, but um, I think it also, maybe it's just a little overwhelming too, right? Trying to, to master everything, at least at first. But it's really what, it's it's the goal. If you can understand everything in this test, then you're pretty much almost there. Yeah. I got a question the other day that was like, how do I know if I, how do I know whether I understand it or not? What, what would you say say to that? If someone says like, well, yeah, I missed this one and I reviewed it and then, yeah, I, I think I get it. What, what would you say? Um, I guess, well, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I feel like if you did understand it, you'd, you'd know that you understand it and that you'd exactly. be able to explain it to someone else confidently in your own words. Exactly. That's exactly what I told this. I, I, I was like, I was like, I'm pretty sure that if you have any doubt whether you understand it, then you don't understand it or you yeah. don't understand it as well as you could. Mm -hmm. Because it, it does, it makes sense. Once you get it, it makes sense. Right. Yeah. So you should feel pretty confident turning to the person on your left or turning to the person on your right or telling your mom or a friend or whatever. You should feel pretty confident that you can tell them exactly what the argument did and what's wrong with the argument maybe, what the conclusion is, what the evidence is. And then you should be able to tell them exactly what the question is asking. Yeah. And then you should be able to tell them exactly why y your answer that you picked was wrong. You know, you should be able to be like, yeah, and I picked it, but here's what's wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And then you should also be able to tell them, and here's why the right answer is right and better. And if, if you can't confidently do that, then yeah, I would say maybe you don't, you haven't quite mastered it yet. Yeah, I agree. I think that articulation is really key because there are definitely situations where people say in class, they, sort of this is a, a, the opposite situation. It's not that they lack confidence, it's that they say, oh yeah, that one makes sense. And then you say, okay, great. Can you help us understand why C is wrong? Or can you help us understand why A, the correct answer is right? And they start describing it and it's sort of like they're grasping for words and it's not exactly, and then they're like, well, wait, maybe maybe it's because of the word all. And then you say, hold on, if you're having trouble 
describing it in a clear way that makes sense to you, maybe your understanding is not as complete as you think it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and with the wrong answers too, right? Because I'll have people be like, well, I see why E is the answer, but can you tell me why B isn't? Mm-hmm. And then I'll read B and I'll be like, well, the fact that you're even looking at B right now <laughs> means that you don't actually know what this question's asking. Not, mm-hmm. not in every case. I'm not saying yeah. that's... Th- there, are, there are other times where it's like, oh, well, here, you, there's this little aspect of B that you don't really understand, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm talking about it'll be a sufficient assumption question, you know? And, and they'll say, okay, well, I see why E works, but what, what about B? And I'll look at B, and it's just not even close to a sufficient assumption of the argument at all. Like, mm-hmm. it just does not connect the evidence to the conclusion. Yeah. And then I'll be like, what type of question is this again? Yeah. What, what were we looking for here? Uh, you know, um, okay. So I, I, I think well, we're not trying to beat anybody up. It's just that. Um, <laughs> Sign up today. If, if you truly had, you know, deep understanding of a question and you could really explain it to somebody, then, then now, now you really get it. Mm-hmm. But um, if you're not sure, then you maybe need to go a little bit deeper. So um, I would recommend for Tao if, if he has not already done this, a study partner can be incredibly useful. If mm-hmm. he could find somebody else that he could sit with coffee and just explain questions to each other, I think that could be hugely useful to him. Um, if not, you know, you could consider working with a tutor. It sounds like he's done a ton of work, and if he's never met with a private tutor before, the tutor might be able to point out to him some areas of things that he doesn't really fully understand. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, the difference between a necessary assumption question and a sufficient assumption question, which yeah. is a really common thing that people who score 170 don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, anyways, that's some, some different ideas. What, do we have anything else for him? No, I think that's good. All good? Okay. Um, any updates that you want to give for the listeners? Anything going forward? Happy Halloween. Um, what are you going to be for Halloween? <laughs> oh, I forgot. It's it's October. Um, I don't ever really be anything. I know that's boring, but I just like try to figure out when I need to go trick-or-treating with the kids. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't dress up for Halloween either. Um, what are the kids going to be? Um... You know, we have a like a big plastic Tupperware bin kind of thing that has a bunch of costumes in it. Uh-huh. And uh, sometimes they get it out and they put stuff on and then sometimes they don't. But I think what will happen on Halloween is that they will go find that, get it out, and put on some random thing that happens to fit. <laughs> and just go get candy. And then go get candy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's more involved. I really should. Uh, I sh- I'm not the authority here. I should ask my wife what really goes on. But I think they do sometimes have very particular wants. Like I want to be Dracula this year. And there's. I know there's. I know in the past there's been problems with like. Oh, we don't have a Dracula thing. Well, I want to go get one. Or Matthew has one, but I don't have. I. You know, there can be very strong desires to be one thing in particular. And I'm always thinking to myself, what? What's with Dracula this year? Why? <laughs> you know, <laughs> who is Dracula? <laughs> But anyways. Cool. Good times. Um, any, anything else? No. Uh, classes have uh, just started. Um, 
it's going to be a little faster this time, you know, because there's not as much time between the October and December tests, but um, it's fun. So, yeah, good times. Um, tutoring business going well. We we talked about this. Uh, ben and I are both available for tutoring via Skype. If you're interested, uh, you can email Ben at strategyprep.com. You can email me, Nathan at foxlsat.com. Uh, we've been both doing, you've been pretty busy with the Skype stuff, haven't you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing how the uh, world has changed, but much smaller place now with, uh, with the modern technology. If you have questions for the show, you can get us help at thinkinglsat.com. And, oh, we got to give our new Twitter handle. <laughs> That's right. I think we're up to like six followers or something. Yeah. Um, what is it? I don't remember oh, wait, what it is. No, I think we're following six people. So. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's just at thinking LSAT. At thinking LSAT on Twitter. Uh, you can definitely tweet us questions and we will get notification if that happens and we will um, tweet maybe, or we'll just talk about it on the show, which is yeah. more likely. I don't really understand Twitter. If someone wants to tweet at me and tell me about Twitter. I'll be all ears. Tell us what to do and we'll try to do it. Yeah, totally. Uh, Okay, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks.